To people who don't know me, my name is David. Uh, my church is uh, Holy Angels, which is in Sierra Mesa. It overlooks Mission Valley, and it's an Eastern Rite church. Not everybody knows, but in the Catholic Church, there's a number of different rites, the largest of which is the Roman Rite. Santa Sophia is a Roman Rite Catholic Church. But there are these other rites within the Catholic Church. We are still in communion with the Pope. We still share the same Eucharist. We are still Catholic. But our theological expression is a little different, and our Sunday liturgy looks and sounds a little different as well. And whenever I give a talk, I always encourage Roman Rite Catholics to come and visit an Eastern Rite at least once, because it dispels the notion that Catholicism has a sort of stale uniformity. When you visit the East, you see that there's far more diversity within the Catholic Church than many people imagine. Uh, the other important thing about me is I talk funny. I'm not originally <laughs> from the United States. I'm from England. But I was working out, I've been here for nearly 10 years. Um, and I have a green card to prove it. So nobody's kicking me out of this country anytime soon. Corrine asked me to give a presentation on the early church. And church history is one of my passions. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about and write about. I have a blog, restlesspilgrim.net. People who are smiling know that this is the point in the talk where I shamelessly promote my website. Um, and I tell everyone to like the, uh, like the Facebook page and subscribe to the monthly newsletter where I share my favorite posts that I've written over the last few weeks. And this is also the point in the talk where I encourage you to ask questions as we go. There'll be some time for Q&A afterwards if we need it, but I always find it's much more productive and engaging if there's some back and forth between the speaker and the people in the audience. And I enjoy that, whether I'm the one giving the talk or I'm sitting where you are. Um, and if you are brave enough to ask questions, I have some prizes for, for, for people who ask questions. Just, just, just to sweeten the pot there. And finally, I'm not always easy to understand. I'm talking about a subject I love, and when I talk about things that I love, I tend to speak more quickly. Um, so if you need me to slow down, tell me. Or if I use words or phrases that aren't common in the United States. Or if my accent just gets too strong, just stop me, and I will have another go at translating it into American. And I'm also going to be using some technical terms. And again, if I don't define them, just throw something at me, and I'll explain what I mean. But before we get any further, we should pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, everywhere present and filling all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and dwell within our hearts, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O gracious one. Saint Clement, pray for us. Saint Ignatius, pray for us. Saint Polycarp, pray for us. Saint Justin, pray for us. All you angels and saints, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the title of tonight's talk is Blood and Ink, How the Early Church Conquered the World. So this evening, we're going to look at the phenomenon which occurred in the few hundred years after Jesus' crucifixion. Because during that time, something very strange happens. How is it that... A, a group, a small sect, started within Judaism, which had been in existence for probably only about three years, and whose founder was arrested, publicly humiliated, and executed. How is it that this group manages to spread throughout the world? How is it that they manage to grow rapidly in size so that they begin to challenge and eventually overcome the Roman Empire. Does anyone know what the growth rate was in the early church? Any guesses? Sociologist Rodney Stark, he estimates that it was about 40% a decade. This was even during persecution. Just think about what your parish would look like if every 10 years it grew by a little under half. 
and especially if members of your parish are being executed while this is happening. But that was the rate that the early church grew at. When Christianity became legal and eventually the official religion of the empire, already about 50% of the empire was Christian. So the question is, how did this happen in a group which had typically had no real wealth or power or influence of their own? They, they advocated nonviolence. They had no army. And they advocated this nonviolence in the face of brutal, decisive, violent persecution. So this is the question that we're looking at tonight. Given all of that, how did the early church conquer the world? And the basic answer that I'm going to give tonight, you could give other answers, and they're all complementary, but I have 45 minutes, so I have to pick one. The basic answer of how the church conquered the world is through martyrdom. Now, the word martyr simply means witness. It comes from the Greek, and it has legal connotations. You know, you have witnesses in court that testify. And what I'm hoping to show is that the early church had martyrs. They had witnesses who testified to Jesus through what they wrote, through their ink, through the way they lived, and ultimately through the way they died in their blood. And it's worth remembering Jesus' words in the Gospel of John. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And this is what happened as the early church was populated with martyrs. They bore much fruit. An ecclesiastical writer, a guy named Tertullian, we're going to be mentioning him again later, he wrote the famous phrase that the blood of the martyrs is seed of Christians, is seed of the church. That as Christians offer up their lives for Jesus, it brings the world's attention and brings more converts. So what we're going to do tonight is we are going to chart the course of the church through history, the first few hundred years, and see how blood and ink, they converted the church. And this isn't just a history lesson. If you guys leave tonight and simply know one or two more historical facts, I will have regarded myself as a failure. The purpose of, of doing this tonight is to inspire you with zeal for your own faith and also to start looking at the early church and considering how we can apply the wisdom of the early church to today's society, to today's problems within the church. So as we look at church history, it's worth bearing in mind that church history doesn't end with the narrative of the Bible. So we have to deal with several hundred years afterwards today. So we'll be looking at some historical sources. But before we do that, let's backtrack and look at the trajectory of the church. First of all, in the Gospels. In the Gospels, we read about Jesus uh, being incarnated, performing his ministry, and receiving persecution, and then death. But fortunately for Christians, the story doesn't end there. He rose again, and he appeared to his disciples, and he taught them, and he sent them out. He told them to go to all of the nations. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he told them to teach these new disciples everything that Jesus had taught them. That's where the story ends with the Gospels. And the rest of the New Testament unpacks a little bit more of what happened in church history. Some of it through the epistles of the apostles, people like Paul, Peter, Jude. But principally through Acts of the Apostles. And I was actually just at the West Coast Biblical Studies Conference this weekend, and this was our focus. And Acts of the Apostles is basically a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. They have the same author, and where events end in Luke's Gospel, that's where they start again in Acts of the Apostles. And it's in Acts of the Apostles that we read about Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, life in the nascent Jerusalem church, and how the followers of Jesus began to live out the Lord's command to preach his gospel, his resurrection, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And we read about how new Christian communities were formed outside of the Holy Land, principally through the ministry 
uh, and missionary journeys of St. Paul. We also read about the struggles that the church had internally. A group known as the Judaizers who were going around and telling Christians that, Gentile Christians, that if they wanted to become Christian, well, they first had to become Jewish. They had to become circumcised. They had to keep kosher. They had to keep the whole law of Moses, and then they could be Christians. And the church responded to this struggle with the Council of Jerusalem, where they declared that, no, you don't have to do that. But there's also a motif that runs through Acts of the Apostles, and that's of persecution and martyrdom. It runs throughout, but we hear about the persecution that St. Paul himself instigated when he wasn't a Christian. And then, as the chapters move forward, St. Paul converts, and then he himself is persecuted. And we also hear about two martyrs. We hear about the proto-martyr, that's the first martyr, Deacon Stephen, who is stoned to death in Acts 7. And then, just in Acts 12, we have the death of the first apostle, St. James, the son of Zebedee. So, even in the earliest history of the church, still found in scripture, we find throughout a history of persecution and martyrdom. And this is a motif that's going to continue as we move through church history. So we're going to now move out of the Bible and a little later in the first century and come to the Emperor Nero. Now, how to describe Nero? I think the contemporary way would be to describe him as a real piece of work. He killed his mother. He divorced his first wife when he found out that she wasn't going to be able to give him a child. And then his second wife, when she was pregnant with their second child, in a rage after he had been out at the, watching the gladiatorial games, his wife was nagging him, and so he kicked her in the stomach, causing her to miscarry their child and ultimately bleed to death. So Emperor Nero, not a nice guy. But the incident that we particularly care about is took place in the summer of AD 64. In Rome, where Nero was, there was this massive fire, and it destroyed large portions of Rome. And it wasn't long before people started pointing fingers at Nero. And there are a few reasons for that. The first reason was that he, it was well known that he wanted some of, the, some of this land for himself. There was a part of Rome where he really wanted to build for himself this new palace. But unfortunately, before the fire, it was occupied by all of these inconvenient poor people. But fortunately, when it all went up in flames, the land was now cleared. And Nero began building work on that land. A little suspiciously quickly. He just did it a little bit too quickly, and people started thinking that he had something to do with this fire. Now. We can't say for certain whether Nero was behind the fire, but we can say for certain that he had a problem. He needed a scapegoat. He needed to distract people from all of these uh, accusatory glances. And fortunately for Nero, there was a cult in Rome, a foreign origin, that didn't arrive that long ago, and the Romans themselves were somewhat suspicious of this new religious group. It was the Christians. And to find out what happened, we look at the uh, Roman historian Tacitus. He says that to put an end to the rumor, Nero punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd styled Christians. Tacitus then goes on and he talks about where this new religious group came from, um, how their founder was killed by Pontius Pilate, and this was ha all happened during the reign of the emperor Tiberius and how the Romans thought that they originally had this new religious movement contained when they killed Jesus. He said, The pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. So it's clear that Tacitus was not a fan of Christianity. He referred to it as a pernicious superstition and as a disease. He then goes on to explain that through continuous torture, eventually some Christians confessed to starting the fires. It's amazing what you'll do, you know, <laughs> if you're given that amount of pain. 
But what happened then is he started arresting vast numbers of Christians, rounding them up and charging them not with arson, but with hatred of humanity. That was the Christian's crime. Tacitus says they were covered with the skins of wild beasts and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened to crosses, and when daylight failed, they were burned to serve as lamps by night. Notice Nero's very cruel care over what happened to the Christians. Nero gave an exhibition in the circus of some of these deaths. And in Roman times, with circus, don't think uh, clowns and jugglers. Think chariot races, gladiatorial matches, and executions. And Nero also opened up his own garden and dressed as a charioteer in kind of treating the, thing, the whole thing like a costume party. He mingled among the crowd as the Christians were killed. And Tastus tells us that this started to backfire because as the Roman people saw the treatment of the Christians and also how they went to their deaths, they started to pity them. And it's in this persecution that the apostles Peter and Paul are killed. Peter, does anyone know how he died? Yeah, he's crucified upside down. He didn't, he didn't regard the, um, himself worthy to die in the same way as his Lord. And St. Paul, anyone know? Yeah, yeah. He was, he was uh, a Roman citizen, so he had the, uh, the sweet deal of having his head cut off instead. Once again, the Romans must have thought that they had finally stopped this, you know, this pernicious superstition that by killing the two most important Christian leaders, that in doing so, they'd also killed this disease of Christianity. However, that didn't work. We are still here. And there are lots of reasons for that. But one very important reason is the Christians had a way of new Christians taking up the mantle of the apostles to care for the church and to preach the deposit of faith. And many of these men we know as the early church fathers. These were the successors to the apostles, the people who preached, they taught, they defended the faith and won new converts. And in almost, in many, many cases, they also offered their lives for Christ. And the rest of tonight, we're going to look at three of them. And as I tell their stories, it's always a good idea to think, how would I have reacted? The first church father we're going to look at is my favorite. His name is Ignatius of Antioch. And Ignatius is also going to be the name of my first son if I get married and I end up marrying somebody who also loves the early church. He was a disciple of the Apostle John, and he was bishop in Antioch. But in 107 AD, he was caught, he was tried, and he was sentenced to death. He was sent in chains from Antioch all the way to Rome. And he was sentenced to be thrown to the wild beasts. Fortunately for us, while he was on his way, he wrote seven letters. He wrote one letter to a fellow bishop, a guy called Polycarp. We're going to be meeting him shortly. He also wrote to five of the churches that he passed on his way. And I have another talk about worship in the early church, what that looked like in the first mm -hmm. century or so. And I draw from those letters a lot more because Ignatius gives us wonderful material, very early attestation to things like Christians worshipping on Sunday rather than the Sabbath, uh, the centrality of the Eucharist, the Christian belief that in the Eucharist we find Jesus' body and blood. And in, in those letters he also battles Gnosticism, specifically this heresy called Docetism. And they basically didn't think that Jesus had a body, and they thought bodies in general were bad. So they liked renouncing marriage, babies. In some cases, suicide could even be good. Um, as you can tell, utterly different from today's society. Oh, no, totally different. And uh, there's just one, one idea that I want to draw from those five letters that he wrote to those churches. And it's... Ignatius saw all of these forces coming in on the church. And so when he wrote to each of these churches, he exhorted them to unity, specifically unity with their bishop. Here's what he said. See that you follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ follows the father. Follow the priests as you would the apostles. 
and reverence the deacons as you would reverence the command of God. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the assembly also be, just as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Let no man deceive himself. If anyone is not within the altar, he is deprived of the bread of God. He, therefore, who does not assemble with the church has thus manifested his pride and condemned himself. So, against this influx of heresy and persecution, Ignatius says, stay with your bishop. Stay within the bounds of the Catholic Church. And incidentally, this is the earliest attestation we have for the phrase, the Catholic Church. This is in 107 AD. You don't have to wait until Constantine. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, ask me questions. That's cool. So he, is, it, is it assumed that he was taught by Jean, taught these teachers, that Jean taught him these? Yes. Like, so, or John was, was his teacher. And, and particularly with that Catholic Church thing, yeah, yeah, Ignatius yeah. doesn't present it as something that he's making up. It's like, you know, there is the, ooh, that's, I'm, there's a church that I'm going to call Catholic. Right. He's using it in a very ho-hum manner, like this is a common term. So yes, it, it, almost, it, it predates that. You're easily within the first century when that was used. And actually, generally, you see that as a real theme throughout the Fathers. It's all about this idea of apostolic succession, of the uh, apostolic pedigree of the teachers. So do we assume then that Jesus taught that? Or was that something that like John and, and the disciples, like that, that term could be Catholic? Maybe. In one of, in one I of, don't want to do real. Oh, no, 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 that's cool, that's cool. I'm, I'm okay with tangents. I never met a tangent I didn't like taking. Um, no, in, in one of Paul's letters, he's, it's Ephesians, I think it is, he, he, he speaks of the church, and it speaks of it in this very universal sense. So even if that term might not have been used, it develops rapidly within the first generation of Christianity. Okay, thanks. No worries. So that was, that was drawn from those five letters that he sent to the neighboring churches. But Ignatius also sent one letter to Rome, to where he was going to die. And that's the main one I want to focus on. I'm just going to read part of it. He says, For what shall a man be profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Him I seek who died for us. Him I desire who rose again for our sake. Permit me to be an imitator of the passion of my God. Ignatius is worried that there might be some well-connected or well-placed Christians in Rome who might try and have his sentence changed, help him escape martyrdom. And so he writes this letter to Rome, unbelievably, to tell them not to interfere. He, sa he says he wants to be an imitator of the passion of his God, Jesus. And he writes about it in the most fiery, amazing terms. He says, let fire and cross, let the crowds of wild beasts let tearings, breakings, and dislocations of bones, let the cutting off of members, let the shatterings of the whole body, and let all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. Hopefully you can see why I like this guy. This was the second, second document from the early church that I read, and his zeal and fire just blew me away. In, if you read, I think it's Philippians, Paul talks about this tension that he has, that he desires to be with Christ, but he knows that he can do good here on earth and serve the church. And you see in Ignatius, you definitely see that desire to be with Christ. And he writes to them, he says, I'm afraid of your love, lest you do me an injury. He's afraid of what they might do to him. He says, for if you are silent concerning me, I shall become gods. But if you show love to my flesh... I shall have to again run my race. He's afraid that they're going to be more care, that they're going to care more about his physical well-being than his spiritual well-being. At this point, Ignatius has, has, has concluded that he is meant for martyrdom, and that means union with Christ. He says, Do not seek to confer upon me any greater favor than that I be sacrificed to God while the altar is still prepared that being gathered together in love, you may sing praise to the Father through Jesus Christ, that God has deemed me, the Bishop of Syria, worthy to be sent from east unto the west. I am the wheat of God, and let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. 
What does that sound like? What do you think of when you hear language about singing, sacrifice, altar, wheat, bread of Christ? The Eucharist. This is all incredibly Eucharistic. Now, Ignatius, he had been a layman and then a clergy for years. He had celebrated the Eucharist every week. He had lived the Eucharistic life, and now he had the opportunity to participate in the sufferings of Jesus in a most real way. And he's also there alluding to the prophecy of Malachi. You actually hear it at every Mass, when, well, Eucharistic prayer number three, when it talks about from the rising of the sun to its setting, from east to west. This is a prophecy in Malachi that someday there is going to be this offering that is going to be found among the Gentiles, that is going to be acceptable to God, which is fulfilled in the Eucharist. And Ignatius, in all of this, sees himself as offering himself in a Eucharistic fashion. Now, I said Ignatius, he wrote five letters to those churches, one to Rome and one to a fellow bishop. And so now we come to the wonderfully named Polycarp. This will be the name of my second son. <laughs> yeah, if I'm ever married, my future wife is going to have to be amazing, very understanding. So, so please pray for her. <laughs> Um, Polycarp, he was the Bishop of Smyrna, and he too leaves a legacy of ink. We have a letter that Polycarp wrote to Philippi. You know in the Bible, you've got the let Paul's letter to the Philippians? It's the same city. Polycarp writes to them sometime after Ignatius is martyred. This is what he says. Let us then be imitators of Christ's patience, and if we suffer for his name's sake, let us glorify him. Well, in AD 155, Polycarp gets his chance. Forty years after meeting his friend bishop, Ignatius, Polycarp suffers the same fate, martyrdom. And we have a written account of Polycarp's martyrdom. It's very detailed. And in the early church, it was extremely popular. And generally speaking, the accounts of the, of the martyrdoms of the martyrologies were amazingly popular in the early church. They were just like just a, a notch below scripture. And this martyrdom account, it's embedded in a letter. And before speaking about Polycarp's martyrdom, the author speaks a little bit about some previous martyrs. He says, who can fail to admire the heroism of the martyrs, their patience and their love of the master? Some of them were so torn with scourging that the anatomy of their bodies could be seen down to their veins and arteries. It's talking about they've been beaten so much you can practically see through them. Yet they remained steadfast, so that even the bystanders took pity on them and wept aloud. As with Nero's persecution, this document also attests to the fact that when Christians offer themselves for their faith and the way that they went to their deaths and endured their torments. It was a powerful witness to the world. Because when you see someone undergoing that, it's going to make you ask questions about your own life and what would motivate somebody to do this. Looking to the grace of Christ, the martyrs despised all the torments of the world and in the space of a single hour purchased eternal life. They looked forward to those good things which are prepared for those who endure. Now this document goes on to talk about a guy called Quintus. He was a Phrygian. And what he did is he got together a bunch of other Phrygians and he convinced themselves to march down to the local Roman office and volunteer themselves for martyrdom. Now this was a no-no in the early church. It's one thing when you've been caught, you're sentenced to death, and like Ignatius, you're embracing this destiny. But you're never meant to go looking for martyrdom like this. And we hear what happens to that group. They go down to the Roman office, and they're tortured. And eventually, one of them apostatizes. He denies Christ, and he offers the pagan sacrifices. It was Quintus the guy that organized the group to go down there in the first place. Which goes to show that martyrdom is a grace, something given by God, not something that we go chasing after. But then we come to martyrdom, the martyrdom of Polycarp. And if you recall when we were looking at Ignatius, I said 
well, I quoted Ignatius, where he said, I want to be an imitator of the passion of my God. Well, in Polycarp's martyrdom, we see lots of parallels with Jesus's own passion. And the text even spells out what some of these are. The chief of police is a guy called Herod. Polycarp is caught when he's betrayed by someone from the household. And if you'd like to look at more of those parallels, I have a wonderful article on my blog, restlesspilgrim.net. I said I shamelessly promote whenever I can. And I actually go through all of the parallels that I found there. And like Jesus, Polycarp predicted his death. Jesus was saying what would happen when he went to Jerusalem. And Polycarp has a dream where he dreams that his pillow is on fire. And when he wakes up, he tells his disciples that he knows that not long from now, he's going to be burned alive. Well, in response to various local persecutions and the mob have killed a bunch of Christians, they now start calling for Polycarp because he'd been in Smyrna for a long time. He was an old, very old man at this point. So he was well known. And so they, they, the mob start baying for blood and they want the bishop. So the Christians start moving Polycarp from house to house. But he eventually becomes cornered and he decides that, okay, he's now being called to martyrdom. He's very kind and gentle with the soldiers and puts food and drink in front of them and takes an hour or two to pray, to prepare himself. The chief of police then takes him towards the arena. And along the way, he's encouraging him that when he gets to the arena, he should just, he should just say that Caesar is Lord and offer the sacrifice. So Caesar is Lord, in Greek, Kaiser Kurios. This is what the Christians were told to say. Because for Christians, who is really Lord? Jesus. Christos Kurios. This was one of the earliest Christian creeds, that Christ is Lord. But the Romans, as a test, they would, they would make them say that Caesar is Lord and offer a sacrifice, which was typically just a, a pinch of incense. You would just throw in a fire. Very easy to do. And Polycarp is brought into the arena, and he meets the proconsul, the guy that's in charge. And he says to him, have respect for your old age. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Change your mind and say, away with the atheists. Because that's one of the names that Christians were called. They were called atheists by the Romans, because they didn't believe in any of the Roman gods. Polycarp's response was amazing. But Polycarp gazing with a stern countenance on the whole rabble of lawless heathen in the arena, let out a deep groan, looking up to heaven, and with a wave of his hand at those present, said, away with the atheists. Because as far as Polycarp was concerned, they were the atheists, not him. The, poly the proconsul insists. He says, take the oath and I will set you free. Revile Christ. And Polycarp's response to this, it's my favorite line in the whole martyrdom. He says, 86 years have I served him, and he never did me any wrong. How then dare I blaspheme my king and my savior? This gets the proconsul angry. He threatens him with beasts. He threatens him with fire. And Polycarp, again, like a boss, he says, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished. You evidently don't know the fire of judgment to come and the eternal punishment which awaits the wicked. But why do you delay? Bring forth what you will. This is the second century equivalent of bring it on. And so the crowd gather, uh, gather, gather wood for a pyre in which they can burn Polycarp. And they then tie him to a stake. But before they can set fire to, to this pyre, Polycarp prays a prayer. And I'm going to read what he prayed. And I just want you to think, what does this remind you of? O Lord God Almighty, I give you thanks. I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy this day and this hour, that I should be one of your martyrs and share in the cup of your Christ to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the Holy Ghost. May I be accepted this day before you, as an acceptable sacrifice, as you have foreordained and have now fulfilled. Therefore, I praise you, 
for all things. I bless you. I glorify you along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, with whom to you and the Holy Spirit be glory both now and to all coming ages. Amen. What does that sound like? I don't do rhetorical questions. I'm expecting an answer. Churchy. It's like sound like church. What's the other one? Sounds like the Apostles' Creed. Sounds like the Apostles' Creed. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Where else do you hear somebody asking, thank, giving a thanksgiving uh, and asking that a sacrifice be acceptable? The it's like the Eucharistic prayer. Again, just like Ignatius, Christians every Sunday, they prepare for their martyrdom. They get to partake of the sacrifice of Christ so that they can then go out and do the same. My body broken for you. My blood poured out for you. And Polycarp gets to offer his own life in thanksgiving. And they set fire to the pyre and the flames wrap around Polycarp. But they don't smell burning flesh. They smell cooking bread. Doesn't that sound Eucharistic? And the flames don't hurt him, so eventually a soldier comes and just runs him through. And blood pours out of the side of now Polycarp. You should be thinking Jesus on the cross. And so much blood pours out that it actually puts out the fire. And the enemies of the Christians ask the magistrate not to release Polycarp's body. And they say for fear that these Christians, they'll just go and start worshipping this Polycarp instead. Yeah. It's exactly the same as Jesus. There you go. But they say that they're afraid that Christians are going to start worshipping Polycarp instead. And the author of the martyrdom has a lovely response to this. He says, They did not realize that we could never abandon Christ, who suffered for our salvation, the blameless one for sinners, or worship any other. Him we worship as being the Son of God. The martyrs we love for being disciples and imitators of the Lord, and deservedly so, because of their unsurpassable devotion to their king and teacher. May it be our good fortune, too, to be their companions and fellow disciples. And I read this section because I think it's really good for Catholics to hear this, because it articulates very well how Catholics distinguish between worship of God and honour that we give to the saints, to the martyrs. There is only one sacrifice that can truly take away sins, and that's Jesus. There is only one God worthy of worship, but we give honour to the martyrs for their imitation of God, for their imitation of Christ and his sacrifice. But they failed to completely destroy Polycarp's body. There were still left some bones. And we're told that afterwards we collected Polycarp's bones, being more precious than the most exquisite jewels and more purified than gold, we interned them in a fitting place. There the Lord will permit us, as far as possible, to assemble in rapturous joy and celebrate his martyrdom, his birthday, both in order to commemorate the heroes who have gone before and to train the heroes yet to come. So again, what does this sound like, the gathering up of these bones and putting them in a particular place? Say that again? Christ's tomb. Christ's tomb. Mm-hmm. But what common Catholic practice do we have? Relics. Yeah, relics. Yeah. Here we have, again, we don't have to wait until the medieval period. This happened in the early church because of the, the care with which the Christians took over the bodies of particularly the martyrs. But also, they say that they gather and celebrate in rapturous joy on a particular day. Here he calls it his birthday. Their feast day. Exactly, you've got their feast day. It's not their birthday in the sense of when they came into this world. It's when they were born into the next. So we've covered St. Ignatius, St. Polycarp. And now we're just going to end with one more. And this is a really great martyr because he's actually got martyr in his name. Yes. <laughs> Justin. Justin the martyr. And it's not his, it's not his surname. His parents weren't setting him up for a fall. It's, descript- <laughs> it's descriptive of what he was well known for. So Justin, he was born in about 8100 in Sumeria to a, a pagan family. Because at this point, all of the Jews have been kicked out of the Holy Land. So Justin, he was a pagan. 
but he sought wisdom and truth. And he did this principally through philosophy. Because at the time, there were all of these different philosophical schools. It's sometimes a little hard for us to think of this today. You know, philosophy is something that you do at school, and it's dry, and it's abstract. Here, it was much closer to being a religion. So Justin first went and looked at the Stoics. So um, we talk about somebody being Stoic today. But back then, it's a fully developed philosophical system. It was founded by a guy called Zeno, which is one of the coolest of names. Maybe kid number three. <laughs> yeah. Is that with the next or a Z? Uh, it's Z, or if you insist, Z, E-N-O. Um, so he, he spent some time with the Stoics, but he didn't hang around them for too long because they couldn't tell him anything about God. And to Justin's mind, that's just silly. So Justin moved on from the Stoics, and he then went to a peripatetic philosopher. This is of the line of Aristotle, that, that sort of philosophy. And Justin left them because the tutor started asking for money. And so to Justin's mind, this guy wasn't really a philosopher at all. Uh, he was more concerned with money than he was truth. So Justin left the peripatetic, and then he went on to the Pythagoreans. Anybody do Pythagoras' theorem at school? Can anyone remember what it is? There we go. <laughs> but when Justin came to the Pythagoreans, they said to him, well, do you know music, geometry, astro astronomy? Because in the Pythagorean system, this was how you did philosophy. And this didn't impress Justin very much. He didn't want to have to learn the tuba to find, about, uh, find out about God. He didn't really care what the sum total of the interior angles on a triangle made. 180 degrees, just if you're taking notes. <laughs> but then Justin came to the Platonists, and here he fared much better. For the principal reason that the Platonists, they spoke about God. Just before we do that. Yeah. When my mum first visited America, uh, we, I took her to a restaurant, and her first comment was, I can hear the conversation of everybody in this restaurant. <laughs> Americans are so loud. <laughs> so, Justin, he came to the Platonists, and this started looking much more like it. He said, the perception of immaterial things quite overpowered me, and the contemplation of ideas furnished my mind with wings. So that in a little while, I supposed that I had become wise, and such was my stupidity. I expected forthwith to look upon God, for this is the end of Plato's philosophy. So Platonism promised the vision of God. And as Catholics, we know that happens in heaven, the beatific vision. But it took Justin a long way. And then he met an old man. Justin was walking near the seashore. And he meets this old man who is never named, and Justin never meets him again. But Justin is wandering along, thinking platonic thoughts, whatever they might be. And he meets this guy who starts sharing his faith with him. He tells him about the Hebrew prophets and witness to him another kind of knowledge. The old man explains that there is knowledge about God that comes through reason, through argument philosophy. But there's another kind of knowledge, revelation. And whereas knowledge of God by reason is proved through argument, knowledge of God through revelation is proved through prophecy, a miracle. And this old man tells him about Jesus. And Justin writes, a flame was kindled in my soul. I found this philosophy alone to be safe and profitable. As far as Justin was concerned, he had now finally found the true philosophy. Now, back in those days, philosophers got their own outfit. There was this cloak that they would wear. And for the rest of his life, Justin wore this cloak because he still regarded himself as a philosopher. He had first found the true philosophy, Christianity. 
And Justin really runs with this idea. And he reasons that if God is the author of natural reason and of revealed truth, and Jesus is the logos, he is the logic, the reason for everything, then ultimately all truth finds its source in God, in Christ, and therefore by extension is the property of all Christians. This meant if anything is good, true, or beautiful, it belongs to us. Now, here I'm talking about philosophy, but this is a general question that Christians wrestle with in the early years. How do we deal with the rest of the world? What do we do when we find these other things out there? Can they be put to the service of the faith? And philosophy was wonderful because it gave the Christians the ability to speak about immaterial realities, to communicate with pagans. And when pagans attacked Christianity using their philosophy, the Christians could point out why it was bad philosophy. And Justin and his successors in thought, people like Clement of Alexandria, they made quite a startling claim. They saw the Greek philosophers as somewhat analogous to the Hebrew prophets. So leading up to the coming of Christ, God is sending prophets to Israel and speaking directly through them to his people. And Justin and other fathers, they say that there's a similar thing happening in the pagan world, in the Gentile world, that you have this flourishing of Greek philosophy that is preparing the Gentile world in a similar way that the prophets are preparing the Hebrew people. And they even go so, are so bold as to claim that people like Socrates and Heraclitus were unknowing Christians. Not that they professed Christ, but they were preparing the way. They also spoke about this one true God. Now Justin's attitude towards philosophy and just things in general, this critical acceptance, it wasn't, there were some different opinions in the church. And I like to look at both extremes. Because when we're thinking about taking the things in the society that we see as good, true, and beautiful, and putting them to the service of the faith, we can fall into one of two problems. The first one is uncritical acceptance. And for that, we have Origen. He was a, an early Christian teacher. Brilliant. I'm going to say some negative things about him, but he is also brilliant. But Origen's problem was that he let his philosophy drive his theology rather than the other way around. And that led him to make some very serious errors. For example, he believed in the pre-existence of the soul, universalism, and the eternity of the world. Now these are three errors that came into his theology through Platonism, through philosophy. And that's not good. And it received quite a lot of a lot of criticism. And one of the main critics in the early church for this embracing of Greek philosophy was a guy called Tertullian. Remember earlier I said the guy who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, the seed of Christians. Again, also, Tertullian, lots of great stuff, big fan. However, he had a blind spot here. If Origen is uncritical acceptance, Tertullian is closer to fideism, faith alone. He said, he, Tertullian's point is, like, why do we need this philosophy stuff? We have, we have something better. We have revelation. We don't need this. And he has this wonderful, in the same way that his Blood of the Martyrs quotation is very memorable, he also said this, and it's quite well known. He said, what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Athens, the, the home of Greek philosophy. What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? And Tertullian went through the heresies of his day, um, Marcionism, uh, from uh, the heretic Valentinus and the Epicureans, and he traces all of their errors to philosophy. And so he basically rejected it. And years later, Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, he has a very similar kind of thought process. But as we saw earlier, there are some very good reasons to take things that are good, true, and beautiful, to take philosophy and make it a handmaiden to theology, to put it in the service of the faith. So we don't really want to end up in either uncritical acceptance or fideism. We want the middle path, 
and that was the path of Justin, and other luminaries in the church. St. Thomas Aquinas is also a really good example. Uh, I think I had a story where a young Dominican came to Thomas and said, basically, how do I get as smart as you? And Thomas said, care less about who said something or where something comes from and care much more about whether or not it's true. And so this is what the early church did with philosophy. They purified it by the light of revelation. And the early church fathers talked about this entire concept. They, when they, they called it despoiling the Egyptians. And it's a reference to something that happened in Exodus 12. So this is the night before the Israelites were about to leave Egypt. And God tells them, go to your Egyptian neighbors and ask to borrow stuff. You know, jewelry, nice clothes, gold. And then they have the Passover. And then they are then rushed out of Israel. No, they're rushed out of then they are rushed out of Egypt. And they're leaving Egypt with all this booty, with all this treasure. Now, some of that treasure ended up in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple in Jerusalem. Where did some of that, some of those jewels and gold in particular also end up? The golden cow. Mm. And the fathers saw in here a warning that you can take these things that are good, true, and beautiful, and you can put them at the service of the faith, but beware, because there is the danger that if you don't do this well, it can lead you away from God, just in the same way the golden calf led the Israelites away from Yahweh. This is why critical acceptance is so important. So what was Justin's legacy? Well, we've spoken a little bit about his legacy in ink. Uh, he wrote lots of works, but we only actually have three of them left. He was also an apologist. You know, this was the era of the church where uh, there were intellectual attacks on Christianity by pagans. And apologists like Justin, like Tertullian, they responded to these challenges. Um, and one of Justin's works, I talk about it in my other talk on worship of the early church, because Justin describes what Christians do in Rome on Sundays. And when you read it, it looks an awful lot like the Mass. But like the other fathers that we've looked at tonight, Justin left not only a legacy in ink, but a legacy in blood. And Justin died together with six other Christians. To complete the arc of this story, in 303 AD, the Emperor Constantine and Licinius, they declare the Edict of Milan. And with this, Christianity is now a religio licita, is now a legal approved religion. This doesn't mean that it's the religion of the, uh, of the empire. A lot of people always think that Constantine made Christianity the religion of the empire. He didn't. That happens in 380 AD, the emperor Theodosius. He's the one who makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. So we see just in that arc, Christianity conquering the Roman Empire and really hence the world. So I'm starting to run out of time. So I'll try and pull a few things together. In the Bible, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we read the following. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Now, modern society isn't exactly the same as the ancient Roman Empire. But it's also not that different. And in addition, human nature hasn't really changed in 2,000 years. So when we look at the era in which Christianity was born, we come across a society where violence was celebrated, marriage was not considered sacred, chastity was a virtue, but one that was very rarely practiced. There was contraception, abortion, it was very common, and there was even infanticide. After you gave birth to your child, you had eight days when you could legally kill that child, flush them down the sewer, leave them by the river, put them in the town dump. The child would most likely starve to death, die of thirst, exposure, or be killed by wild animals. If that kid was really lucky, it might be taken by a slave trader, where it could look forward to a life of prostitution, slavery, abuse. 
In the Roman Empire, there was poverty and hunger, but they were also spiritually starving. If you've ever read anything about their gods, they were cruel and capricious. During that time, the church suffered intellectual attack from within, in heresy, and also from outside, from the pagans. And also, the Christians lived in a changing political landscape because there were some emperors that had a don't ask, don't tell kind of policy. So we're not going to ask if you're Christian, so don't tell us. And then they tended to persecute and execute when they had to, when it came out. But other emperors actively sought to persecute Christians. Um, Nero, Decius, Diocletian, these ones in particular. And even after the legalization of Christianity, not all emperors were favorable to Christianity at all. The um, Justinian, the apostate, he tried to bring paganism back, thankfully failed. And even as Christianity progressed, there weren't always orthodox emperors on the throne. So how did the church respond to this? Well, when faced with violence, the first Christians offered peace and blessing. The first Christians restored the sanctity of marriage and actually elevated it to be a sacrament. Chastity was exhorted in all states of life and celibate life flourished. The dignity and worth of each human life was recognized and preached. There was an openness to life. And actually one of the ministries of, in the early church, the women would go to by the Tiber River where babies would often be abandoned. They would go to these dumps in the town and go and collect these babies and rescue them and raise them. The Christians made the most of the political support they had at the time, but they didn't rely on it and see it as purely necessary in the fulfillment of their mission to to preach the kingdom, to preach the good news. In response to heresy, the Christians stayed close together. They stayed close to the hierarchy of the church, their bishop, and they encouraged one another by reading the, the Acts of the Martyrs. The church fed the poor, and not just their poor, but also the pagan poor. And to the spiritually starving, they brought the gospel and the Eucharist, the words of life and the bread of life. And ultimately, the Christians offer themselves in martyrdom when necessary. They imitated Jesus. And this proved to be very fertile ground for new converts. And if I had another hour, I would fill it with stories of martyrs going to their deaths and in so doing, bringing new Christians to life. So how did the early church conquer the world? Through blood and ink, through martyrdom, through the testimony of their lives and through the testimony of their deaths. And even after persecutions ended, St. Jerome, he's from about the 4th, 5th century, he said, let's not think that there is only martyrdom in the shedding of blood. I know that nowadays we often think of that. But Jerome said there is always martyrdom. That's because Christians are always called to witness to Jesus in their lives, be it in life or in death. The early church conquered the world through blood and ink, and we're called to conquer it again in our generation. Let's end in prayer. I want to read a short passage from the Book of Wisdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. But the souls of the just are in the hand of God, and no torment shall touch them. They seemed in the view of the foolish to be dead, an affliction, utter destruction, but they are in peace. For if before men indeed they would be punished, yet is their hope full of immortality, chastised a little, they shall be greatly blessed, because God tried them and found them worthy of himself. As gold in the furnace he proved them, and as sacrificial offerings he took them to himself. In the time of their visitation they shall shine, and they shall judge nations and rule over peoples, and the Lord shall be their king forever. Those who trust in him shall understand truth, and the faithful shall abide with him in love, because grace and mercy are with his holy ones, and his care is with the elect. Heavenly Father, thank you for these stories of your martyrs, and inspire our faith. We ask you to care for those who suffer persecution today, particularly violent persecution, even in Syria, the place of your martyr, St. Ignatius. 
I ask that we would offer our small persecutions to your service, whether we would take courage that we have your example to follow, your spirit to guide us, and that we ultimately have a great cloud of witnesses in heaven cheering us on. And through the testimony of our lives, may we win this world to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm.